It's What's Next with Peter Buffett. I'm Jimmy Buff. And Peter, on the show this week, we've got Josh Fox, the extraordinary environmental filmmaker. I don't know if that's a category, but um, just to put it. He just made it. (laughs) (laughs) He is the Academy Award-nominated director of Gasland about the fight against fracking in the Northeast and Pennsylvania and in uh, New York particularly. He made Gasland, too, and his new film is called how to let go of the world and love everything that climate can't change. I love that, and I can't wait to see the marquee people going, how the <laughs> heck are we going to put this up? <laughs> it's an extraordinary piece of filmmaking, and it's funny because for a few months I've been wondering about the, you know, if you're a first responder or if you're someone who deals with something really intense up close on a regular basis, it can have a deep, profound psychological effect on you. Yeah. You know, there's a post-traumatic stress component to that stuff, even with people who are trying to um, fight, you know, fight the fights and keep, you know, and, and, and save the environment and save, you know, fight climate change. People sure. like Bill McKibben and the fr- and who are on the front. We actually had a, a, someone on the show recently whose partner makes environmental films and she had to tell him to chill out with the gloom and doom talk right. at the dinner table. Yeah. Because while he's making these films about, you know, issues and, and how to resolve them, you start to think, are we actually going to be able to do this? Yeah. No, it's the same experience I have when I talk to young women who have been trafficked. You know, when you hear their stories, you're never the same. Yeah. And then, you know, being up close and personal to it and knowing what needs to be done can be overwhelming. Yeah, can for sure. can put you in a dark, dark place. And yep. that's sort of what happened with Josh Fox. Now, you saw the yep. film, right? I did. It's incredible. Everyone must see it. And I'll keep saying that over and over again. And it reminds me of the great saying that we are not inheriting this earth from our ancestors. We are borrowing it from our children. And I think this film really brings that home. We'll be back with Josh Fox in just a moment. It's What's Next with Peter Buffett. I'm Jimmy Buff, and in the studio with us, filmmaker Josh Fox. Hi, Josh. Good morning. <laughs> How are you doing? You I was just drinking coffee? some coffee. <laughs> right. I wasn't prepared. Busted. <laughs> yeah. How are you? We're, we're okay. You're okay? I'm okay? I'm okay. Right. Yeah. I have to quickly say that my brother-in-law, when he was young, he thought the name of the book, it was a, he thought it was about an Inuit and that it was Imok, you're okay. <laughs> anyway, I, I digress. A nice indigenous name. The, um, right. I'm okay, you're okay, Josh is okay, the uh, planet not so okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, and well, uh, getting less true. okay day by day. Yeah. And um, when I when I first heard about um, the film How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change, I thought, oh, I need to see this because um, I, I, I get very uh, discouraged mm-hmm. these days. You know, sitting right behind me uh, is a recycling bin. Yeah. And two feet on the other side is a garbage pail. Right. And when I come in in the morning and there's recyclables in the garbage pail and it's two feet away. Right. <laughs> and I see that all the time. You right. Know? Just and we're, we're counting on people who can't not text and drive to save the world, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I think that the movie is really about that cycle uh, where you're pinging back and forth between denial and despair, at least the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. When you really look at the climate in a close and in-depth way, it's very, very difficult to absorb the information that's coming to you because it is so desperate. It is such a dire situation, and we are way too late to start dealing with this. You know, we should have made a major overhaul in our energy systems when James Hansen went into Congress in 1988 and started saying, by the way, I've been studying the clouds of Venus Mm-hmm. Um, with NASA, Venus is now 700 degrees at the temperature, uh, at the surface. It can melt lead at the sur- because of a runaway greenhouse effect. And I'm looking at the clouds in the, on Earth and the greenhouse gases in our atmosphere, and we're warming the planet. And, of course, what happened, ExxonMobil, Shell, the major oil companies, knew all about climate change, and they decided to pursue a campaign of obfuscation and uh, 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 of the science um, and some character assassination of, of, of scientists um, in order to continue their business model, which was, in fact, and still is, wrecking the planet. Um, you know, when you think of environmentalists, people often say, oh, these people are radicals. But as Bill McKibben would say, the real radicals work at the oil companies. <laughs> right. it's, a, it's a radical 
Uh, it's almost like a, a, a plot from like a Superman movie. We are going to alter the chemical composition of the atmosphere and make it right. difficult to live. So yes, um, we're in in deep trouble. And the movie is sort of is my sort of personal um, encounter with that information and how upsetting it is. And really, the first thirty five minutes of the film, you're ramming you know into a brick wall at hundred miles an hour, um, and I basically quit in the first third of the movie. Um, but what rescues me and what rescues uh, the film and what rescues what, what is possible, possibly going to rescue humanity are all of these amazing people who have their backs against the wall, who are fighting in spite of the, dis- the circumstances that they're in. And that's when I discover all the things that climate can't change, all the things that are worth fighting for, that are left to fight for. And those are our civic virtues. You know, democracy, human rights, community, courage, love, innovation. Um, not necessarily talk about solar panels because right. that's a technological thing. We're talking about the things that are inside of us in this movie. So this movie has a really profound effect on audiences um, as I keep watching it out there on the road. Um, it's extraordinary emotional. It's a, it's a total emotional roller coaster. I think of it more of as, as an action-adventure movie than a climate film, which you normally think of as like a kind of a, more of a, an essay. But this film really is a journey around the world um, into some very perilous circumstances with people who end up coming out the other side over and over and over again to be leaders and to be very inspiring. Yeah, I will uh, say, because I didn't want to say it until we got on mic, um, that... Uh, the show's called What's Next, right? So it's about people that are thinking about the future. Um, sometimes we talk about what's now <laughs> or what happened. Uh, but I have to say that I have never watched a more pitch-perfect piece than what you've created. I, Thank I, you. Hands down, you set it up. You didn't think, you, di- you didn't give us false hope. Because everybody wants false hope. Everybody wants that we can technologize, you know, we can get out of this technologically. Uh, We're smart. We're brilliant. We, you know, and um, there's a a quote uh, from someone, I can't remember who, that said, we must disenthrall ourselves. We must stop being so amazed at what we can do (laughs) and, and start to remember who we are. Basically, that's that I added that part. And um, you start with such... I, I, I really was sort of stunned because you start right where I sit every day, which is in a stream, <laughs> the Esopus Creek. Right. And I have thought to myself uh, quite seriously that once you trust the messages of nature, nature trusts you as a messenger. There, when you can really sit with it, it will respond. But you have to sit. You have to listen. You have to be quiet. And you did that. Yeah. You clearly did that. And... Uh, I have to say that from my vantage point, from what I experience every day, that nature is trusting you to speak for it. Thanks. I, I you know, I, I completely agree with you. You know, the film starts with us winning right. on fracking in my backyard. You know, you have the Esopus Creek where I'm at Calkins Creek, which is one of the thousands of tributaries to the Delaware River, uh, which is the watershed for Philadelphia, southern New Jersey, New York City. Um And that's a stream that runs right by my house. It's been there for my whole life. And after we win on fracking, all I want to do is stay home. Right. And just not go anywhere and do exactly what you're saying. Right. Listen. Absorb. And I remember shooting those sequences going, you know, this, and just going out with the camera and amazing things happen. You know, you find yourself charging down, running full speed through the woods along deer trails. And then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden there's this owl that comes out of nowhere and he's looking right at you. And there's a shot of that in the film. Mm -hmm. And then I realize um, this tree that I planted when I was five years old, it was near the road. I looked at it, it was a sapling. I said to my dad, that tree is not going to make it there. We got to move it. So we moved it to the front yard. You know, 40 years later, it's you know, huge and mm-hmm. 35, 40 feet tall, and now it's dying. It's dying of the woolly adelgid. It's a hemlock tree. The, the woolly adelgid is a parasite advancing up the coast of, uh, of our iconic eastern hemlock forests, starting in Virginia, going all the way up to Maine. It's going to eat those forests because climate change is warming the atmosphere and it's allowing that pest to move north. And we're going to lose those forests. Right. And, you know, it's, it's going to take 10 or 15 years 
But once they're in the tree, there's nothing you can do. It's very, very hard to protect. And it reminded me of all the trees out west that are being consumed by the pine beetles, which is devastating. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that just – it was a wake-up call. It was like we could win against fracking in our own backyard. And this is a message for New York, obviously – and lose everything we love to climate change. Mm-hmm. And then just after that, Hurricane Sandy empties the Atlantic Ocean into the New York City subway system. And you realize no one is exempt. No one is getting out of this without some form of perilous consequence. And that really says to me in, in the course of making the film, as much as I want mission accomplished, you know, we, we stopped mm-hmm. this in the Delaware River Basin. This is not about me. This is not about just my backyard. This is about everyone and everywhere. Um, but yeah, I definitely crave that time where you're able to just listen to the natural rhythms of the mm-hmm. earth, which is something that we don't get a lot of right. in daily life because it's so been consumed by the culture that we're in the middle of. Right. Weapons of mass distraction. Um, <laughs> and there's a great indigenous line that that says, uh, you tried to bury us, you didn't realize that we were seeds. And I think that where you go with the story, again, is right in line with where I've gone in my life, uh, what we try to support through the foundation uh, in every way we can. And that is uh, indigenous um I don't. I don't like to w- use the word wisdom or all this stuff because it puts it puts it into this context of kind of noble savage and all this stuff that that I, it's just plain true. <laughs> I think of them as values, Absolutely. as a value structure. Yeah, yeah. You know, we we are in a. If we look at the world today, our civilization is based on greed, competition, and violence. Yep. These are the things that hold us. Uh, or well, I won't say hold us together, but this is what we're the system that we're in, <laughs> mm-hmm. and underneath that is what people really want to be, mm-hmm. which is this whole other system of sustainable values, you know, democracy, human rights, um, the things that I just mentioned, and yeah, a lot of those values are embedded in indigenous culture, right. but they're also embedded in inner, in inner city culture. When right. you look, I visit with this uh, incredible community center on the Rockaways mm-hmm. that rebuilt their whole community after Hurricane Sandy. You know, the entire peninsula of the Rockaways was underwater. They had no, uh, and this was a very poor community where 200% of the people, uh, or sorry, um, uh, 80% of the people live 200% below the poverty line. This is mm-hmm. real poverty in America, in New York City. And these people rebuilt their community, and they say they're stronger now than they were before the storm. Mm-hmm. And that's because they pulled together, and that was internal inside of them to, you know, in crisis all these things come out, right? Right. The yeah, bad exactly. and the good. Yeah. But the good can really emerge, and that's what this film is asking people to do, to call upon that within them. And, of course, that it's amazing in the movie to see the same kind of things being said by folks in the inner city of New York and then in, you know, Sarayaku right. in the middle of the Amazon with indigenous tribes in the Amazon and then people in China speaking out about, you know, the pollution there and the human rights catastrophe to folks from Samoa and Fiji and Vanuatu – and everybody reflecting a sense that we need to shift our internal sense of values. Right. And that's what I see in the fracking movement. That's what mm-hmm. I see in all the movements that are in America right now. Mm-hmm. I see that core of basic belief in community and basic belief in democracy and citizenship and participation. And, you know, I, 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 I have a lot of faith in that actually being something transformative in our society even as as the climate is making these very negative transformations. Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, first of all, we all came from a tribe at some point, right? So we do have these values embedded in us. And um, what I loved about the film as well is it's it's not actually a climate change film. It's so much bigger (laughs) than that. (laughs) And... I believe, and this is a very strange line of thinking, but I think you're going to agree, is that climate change, the argument, is, to me, almost a product of the system. They want us to argue about it. They want us to stay. It's almost, well, not almost. It's like politics right now. It's keep fighting. That's fine. Keep your eyes on the boxing ring. Meanwhile, outside the arena, there's a bunch of logos on it, and you're not going to notice. And so climate change 
to me is is essentially a tool of the existing structure and it keeps us from the real issue which is growth consumption greed all these things that drive the climate to change and you talk about that uh, essentially like no one else I don't think has uh, as blatantly as you have, which is a good thing. <laughs> well, the problem is not just fossil fuels. It's also uh, animal agriculture. Right. It's also uh, just c- c- civilization as a whole. So we do have, you know, we have a reckoning that's on, on the way and it's already right. happening. Um, you know, we are just emerging from the five warmest months on record, four warmest months in all of history. We had virtually no winter right. in the East um, this year, whereas last year and the year before that, we had insane winters. And these are both consequences of climate change. The climate, um, w- w- what climate change does is it increases the extremes. It doesn't, you know what right. I mean? So you right. have extreme cold, extreme storms. You have the worst snowstorms in history of, of Boston and New York last year, and this right. year, none. So it's 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 also that's very confusing to nature. It's very bad for trees. It's very bad for animals. It's very bad for the things that underpin life in general. But yeah, I mean, I think that what we're trying to talk about here, it, when we go out on the road and we're doing this for with all of our films, we take them directly to the people who can use them the most, which are the people who are fighting those battles. For example, here in Woodstock, you're fighting the Pilgrim pipelines. You're fighting the bomb trains. And there are communities that are up in arms. For example, if we go just a few miles to the west of here, people are fighting the Constitution pipeline. And to the south of here, people are fighting the AIM pipeline. And uh, if we go to the north and to New England, people are fighting the NED pipeline. And in Denton, Texas, they're Mm -hmm. fighting frack gas power plants. Um, And the same thing is happening in Middletown, New York, or in Jessup, Pennsylvania. And we go and go and go. But the point of, of, of I've been watching this movement, first the anti-fracking movement, then the climate movement, and the Occupy movement, grow and grow and grow to the state to which it is a kind of permanent, uh, established way of life. Because, you know, what I would say to the crowds is, yeah, we're back here. We've, we fought fracking and won in New York State, but we're back here because now we're fighting the pipelines. But to be honest, isn't this a better way of living than just going back to your cul-de-sac, right. plugging in your PlayStation, um, and living at the end of, you know, I mean, and, and ignoring the world. A guy got up yesterday, two days ago in Westchester when we did our screening in Westchester. We had a huge screening because they were fighting this AIM pipeline in Westchester, of all places. Right. And he gets up and he goes, well, I just watched a movie, and uh, tonight I'm going to drive to my house. And I'm going to turn the heat up because it's cold outside. I'm going to watch something on television. And I'm going to make a steak. And I looked at him and I said, "You just—it sounds like you're writing a Charles Bukowski poem." Yeah. You know, I'm like, I'm like, and I just wanted to say, is that making you happy? Right. Because, and you know, what is actually making us happy though is this coming together mm-hmm. of this movement, which is so in- incredibly meaningful. Mm-hmm. And you meet these, you meet people who are going to be your friends um, right. for your entire life. Like, and I don't know what I would do without. You know, John Fenton in Wyoming or um, Mika Maeva, who I know from Samoa, uh, or Nina Walinga in, in Sarayaku, uh, or my friend uh, Jack Zhang, our producer in China. You know, the people that I've met from me, or just the fact that now I know all my neighbors in the yeah, upper Delaware. Exactly. <laughs> instead of not knowing them yeah. and walling ourselves into those little boxes. Right. You know, um, that's the progress and this is the permanent new way that we're living and yes of course it always comes up in opposition to something but we're now starting to look at what we're building and not just in terms of we're building solar panels and we're building renewable energy but what are we building as the principles of this um as we go forward because i find that really remarkable it's funny because i i used to have um a belief that if anything substantial uh, any any gains against climate change were going to be made, it was going to have to come from the cop, uh, top down, from governments, from legislation. But watching these movements up close, including here, the anti-fracking movement, we had a, a, about a year and a half ago a, uh, a group of people spring up very quickly to stop uh, a water bottling company from coming in this, yeah. and yep. taking water from the reservoir up the road from us. And then you look and you see it's it, it well may be that these pockets of of community that are developing may be the answer instead of, you know, it, it, like cells linking and, I think and reproducing, that's true. right? Well, when we made Gasland, there were tons of anti-fracking groups, hundreds of them around the country, but they didn't know each other. 
because there wasn't that connective tissue. And mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons why that movie was so popular is because it did connect the dots. It connected people who were having the same consequences of fracking in Wyoming and Pennsylvania and New York and New Mexico and California and France and South Africa <laughs> and Australia. And that helped make a channel of communication. Um, and I'm seeing that. But, you know, America right now is a nation of movements. It is a nation where movements have an extraordinary amount of power. Um, you know, the anti-fracking movement, the climate movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Occupy movement, these are real centers of power. And it's interesting because a couple of years ago, Princeton University came out with a study. They asked the question, apropos of nothing, oh, well, what form of government does America actually have? Let's study this. And so they looked at all these public policy questions, and they looked at how people voted and what they wanted their vote to mean. And lo and behold, they come back years later with this study that says, well, um, America is not really a democracy. America is an oligarchy. If you don't have a, a billion dollars, you don't, you don't count in America. And these people think that they're participating. That's, that's why, you know, 80% of America can get, wants basic gun control rights and we don't get it. Or 90% of America wants a hike in the minimum wage and we don't get it. Or 70% of Americans want action on climate change and we don't get it. It's because that has no correlation. But when you look at um, the antidote to that is not to go home, shrug your shoulders and go, oh my God, whoops. You know, if you look at, look at the lens of history, you know, when black people couldn't vote in America, was America a democracy? When women couldn't vote, was America a democracy? No. So most of the time for history, by modern standards, America wasn't a democracy. What did those people do? The answer is everything. You know, they made movies. We had songs. We had huge protests. We did civil disobedience. We had conversations around every single dinner table and kitchen um, and breakfast table. And that's what's happening now in America to try to correct the problem that we don't have that kind of democracy. So you're seeing these movements. I think the rise of the Bernie Sanders campaign is a huge grassroots uh, step in mm-hmm. that direction because mm-hmm. people are and, and, and you know people are upset and they're trying to come together and trying to figure out how to take back their power. You will hear us say on this show, uh, you know that uh, the country was definitely made by and for white men. There's there's no question. And and I would say recently I've I've come to really realize it always I, I always felt this way, but the nation state in general and this nation in particular, I mean it was built. On on business, it, it, it you know the the first people that came here uh, were under charter to businesses. The nation is a construct to uh, allow business to work, and if that's true, which I believe it is, it's the construct that's actually faulty. And and so I go so far as to say that I think we're at the end of the nation state as a a, a way to come together. Uh, as people, and that it is going to be community, it's going to be bioregions, it's going to be a, a completely different way of of organizing ourselves um, that will be m- more conducive to everything you're talking about, to community, to love, to, uh, you know, feeling like you're actually participating. Um, so just so you know, <laughs> we are uh, so very much in agreement here, uh, but I would take it a little further and say, uh, America, as it was built, can't actually last in its form. Now, whether that's a 20-year process, a 100-year process, I don't know what that is. But but I think we're in the, the wrong framing to get to where we want to go, which is not to say it has to be some crazy revolution and everybody's going to you know get up in arms and, and all of that. I think we can negotiate a revolution. <laughs> um, but that's tricky territory. Well, I think, I think something is happening. And I, and I, <clears throat> I you know... The problem with making a film about climate change is that you want so badly to believe in humanity. Right. And at the same time, you are looking at science, which is extraordinarily upsetting and damning. We've already warmed the climate by one degree Celsius. Through all of our carbon dioxide emissions from the last hundreds of years, we have warmed the earth by one degree Celsius. And that's the average, right? 
Well, it's an average. It doesn't right. sound like so much. Right, right. But, you know, one degree Celsius. But if you think about, okay, what happens if your freezer at home is at 32 degrees and you Fahrenheit and you warm it by one degree Celsius, two degrees, everything in your freezer starts to melt and spoil. Right. And that's what's happening on the planet Earth. Think about you your know, body when you have a fever. Right. Mm-hmm. One or two degrees matters yep. a lot. Right. And, and you know, that's the, the, the analogy because now you're seeing everything that's frozen on Earth that should stay frozen to keep the sea level at the same rate is starting to melt. And what that means is, um, you know, really uh, horrific consequences. We've added about 5% more moisture to the atmosphere, which means that these storms, these hurricanes, tornadoes, that they're getting much, much worse because the wetter um, atmosphere can create much bigger storms. Um, and you're, the other th- part of this that we need to know is that We've already put enough carbon dioxide and methane and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere right now to warm the climate for the next several decades, which means we're already at at least 1.5 degrees. So if we turned everything off right now, we would still get to 1.5 degrees. Exactly. What does this mean? Well, at two degrees of warming, we uh, start down that road of melting those glaciers and ice formations enough to create five to nine meters unstoppable of sea level rise. Five to nine meters of sea level rise means New York City, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Miami, Charleston, Providence, Baltimore go underwater. And not just on the East Coast, but all across the world. Right. You know, 90% of major cities are on water. Right. Not um, to mention Bangladesh. Bangladesh, <laughs> right. Beijing, Shanghai, right. Manila. Jakarta, the list goes on and on. We're yeah. talking at two degrees about nearly a billion climate refugees, people who have to move out of those cities. Right. You think about it like you look at this, the map of New York City, which we have in the movie, uh, two degrees warming of, of uh, seven meters of sea level rise. And, you know, all the New Yorkers do the same thing because you see the coasts getting completely submerged, right? And the Lower East Side goes under, Williamsburg goes under, Red Hook goes under, a lot of the financial district goes under. And they go, people all go, well, I live here. I live near Central Park, so I'm okay. Yeah. And you're like, you know what? Um, yeah, but you, sure, yeah. the Brooklyn yeah. Bridge won't be underwater, right. but the on-ramp will be. Right. You know, how are you going to get to Park Slope if exactly. you can't get on the subway? And all those right. people yeah. who are in Lower Manhattan are now on your doorstep. Well, right, right. 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 Yeah. All, the, all those people right. are kind of flooding, you know. Yeah. So, so what we really worry about, what I really worry about, is the situation, for example, that happened in Hurricane Katrina, mm-hmm. where... Black people from the inner city were mm-hmm. flooded out and drowning and trying to get to the suburbs but crossing the bridge met by shotguns yeah. and the armed right. guards of the white suburbs. And that was an, a disastrous, disgraceful moment in American history. Yeah. And when we, what is doing that? You know, what happens in the future? Do we have the same situation on the George Washington Bridge? Well, not if we can help it. Not if we can right. say... You know, our, knowing our neighbors in the future and, and treasuring them and understanding them is more important than your property line, right. than your fence line, than your, you know, than your possessions. Because the truth of the matter is this will um, – we have to be guided by some other principle if we're not going to see a resurgence of that Katrina mess. Yeah. So making a film about the climate, you look at these things and you're trying to figure out, well, how – in the world, do I make a film about this that doesn't make everyone want to leave the theater and just jump off a bridge? Um, you know, and the answer is looking inside to those things that climate can't change. You know, what are those things that are so deep inside of us that no storm can take them away? Can we strengthen that? And can I give that as guidance in some way that was given to me by these incredible people who I've interviewed around the world and say to the, this movement that we're in the middle of, um, these are some guiding principles as we go forward. It's What's Next with Peter Buffett. I'm Jimmy Buffett, and in the studio with us this show is Josh Fox, the filmmaker. He made Gasland, Gasland 2, and the new movie is called How to Let Go of the World and Love Everything Climate Can't Change. And I did that without reading it. I know, that's, that's <laughs> not bad. excellent. Right. It was a very hard movie to make a title for. Uh, yeah. It's a great title. Yeah, we a had a lot yeah, of working yeah, titles. But yeah. by the way, also Gasland was a very hard movie to figure yeah. out the title for. Yeah. yeah, We didn't have the title for that until like the last day. Right. The, the, Gasland nominated for an Academy Award, by the way. Yes. Earlier, that was fun. Earlier yeah. in the show, yeah. we were talking <laughs> right. about competition, right? Yeah. Isn't yeah. it weird to be in competition with art? It is art. weird. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is weird. Yeah. There are even so much as now there's a, there are competitive, there are competitive awards now for impact. 
on I, I, documentaries. Yeah. They're impact awards. It's insane. Like, this film right. on rape right. had a right. Be- right. bigger impact than right. that film on GMOs, so we right. give you an award. Right. Which is it's so crazy. bizarre. I mean, I'm not yeah. joking either. No. I, and those are both I amazing know. movies, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or this mm-hmm. film on genocide was right. more effective than this film on... Right. You know, yeah. sharks. It's <laughs> like, I'm like, how do you make that a comp- competition? How could you possibly? And we so, made everything a competition. I know. It's very strange. <laughs> why can't we celebrate uh, all of those films? And the truth is, you know, as a, as a filmmaker, you have this. It's just it's lodged in your brain. The Oscars, it's just there. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and you want to go there. You want to go back there if you've right. been there. You want those right. trophies. It's Even, so strange. Yeah. But it's yeah. In, yeah. ingrained in you. Yeah. If we can see it as a celebration yeah. rather than a competition, I think right. that's better. Yep, <laughs> absolutely. And, it, and it's human nature. Some of that competition that you're talking about is human nature. But so are the things that you discovered after the first 35 minutes of the film where you just, as Peter was saying earlier, you just hit us between the eye one after another after another the, the just and you're left there and suddenly you shift mm-hmm. yeah. which was you didn't know what was going to happen when you made that shift you took your camera and you went out into the world seeking solace of sort right uh, inspiration we well, see so many documentaries unfortunately these days and these are are, are you know i'm not talking about the movies that I, that I love but where there is this sort of genre of the political documentary that they kind of know what they're doing before they even start shooting right they know the answer before they they haven't ever actually asked the question and those become kind of um lectures or essays i never know what the hell i'm trying to do if i don't have a real active question mm-hmm. then there's no point in making the movie you know i'm making the film to answer something that is very difficult and if i have a few answers then i have to find the next set of questions or else it's not. So right. to me, I think of this in very simple terms. Polit- politics is about answers, and art is about questions. And, you know, of course, our my work is, you know, because it's so, uh, there's such a deep element of reporting in it. I have to be 20 times more adamant about fact-checking and about making sure that we have everything right because we have an opinion, right. <laughs> you know. Right. Um, and And... And, and so that's a huge part of it. But mm-hmm. but if the answers are coming in and they're getting solved, then you have to the, – the quest of, of making uh, um, a piece of art and an, ar- an arc, I think that's a deep kind of questioning. So if I know the answer ahead of time, I would be bored and you right. know, not want to make the movie. That seems like a very um, kind of, I don't know, stale undertaking. So this movie, yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that that's what uh, – what, in the end, you know, kind of is interesting because I am um, trying to grapple with these these questions and then realize that I'm I'm unable to synthesize, uh, 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 you know, what you said, like this false optimism, mm-hmm. um, this, uh, you know, deus ex technology or whatever you want to call it, right. that the solar panels will save us and all right. that. Now, right. of course, solar panels, wind farms, these things are inherently much more democratic forms of energy right. than, you know, the oil and gas industry and the coal industry, which has this incredibly um, uh, exploitative history. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it was that sense that I don't know what to do about this problem mm-hmm. that I think, um, you know, then gets answered <laughs> by right. people rather than I know what I'm doing as a filmmaker and listen to me. Right. Um, this, but I, I think that there's so much, um, there's so many times when I just get my ass kicked by this movie and get as, totally astonished by what just happened. Um, and, and, and in a way it was happening I, too fast for me even to control it. I feel very exposed in this film. I think it's very personal and it's, and it's almost like, you know, in the other films I tried to stay as much out of it as I could. This one really just sucked right. me in and I can't I can't get out of it. <laughs> Which so. is a huge piece of the film is you show yourself. You show your vulnerability, your uh, confusion, your questions, uh, your and and I think most importantly actually in some ways your humor <laughs> which is a critical part of this is that you're willing to just put all of yourself out there. Uh, and, and even in some of the imagery you choose that you're not necessarily a part of. I mean, you, you both in a 
um, you know, certainly meaningful and intense way, but also in a beautiful and surprising way. I mean, two ballerinas on the beach. Come on. <laughs> well, that just happened one day. Yeah, that is awesome. You know, the film. And the um, Rockaways, right? Yeah. 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 A thousand days after Hurricane Sandy, two black ballerinas. Just, just beautiful t- souls. And they, yeah. t- they, you know, they're like, well, we met when Hurricane Sandy sent the boardwalk through my school. Right. And I was like, the boardwalk was in the school? She was like, yeah, the school got shut down, so I had to go to a different school. And that's when these two ballerinas met each other. And, you know, we have a dance through line in the film. Um, There's a lot of different through lines in the film. There's dance, there's trees. Um, but, but, um, you know, the movie starts with a dance sequence. It starts with a victory dance. I'm not right. going to, you know, that's a right. spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, so when we went back, you know, three years after Hurricane Sandy and said, well, we want to f- see, is there a way that we can, you know, close this film with a dance sequence? Um, you know, and, and, and the thought was like, let's have that at the end of the movie as well. Um, and then, um, Aria Doe was like, oh, I've got just a thing. I'm like, okay, sure, we'll come. I wasn't even really paying attention. All of a sudden, walking into the room are these two ballerinas. And she looked at me and she goes, I don't want you to use double dutch. I don't want you to use break dancing. I don't want a stereotypical vision of the Rockaways that is, quote unquote, black culture. You got to look at, you got to watch these girls. And I was like... To- yes, because yeah. this yeah. is surprising and this is not what you expect. Um, and then, of course, the the impulse to, to have that symbol on the beach, defiant of almost right. the water, saying we're going to be this beautiful symbol of, of hope and um, of the human spirit in the face of the water that defines us. Because right. if you live yeah. on the Rockways, you're defined by that water mm-hmm. and that threatens our very existence. It is... Is remarkable. Um, so I, I, yep. I personally love that. Yeah, that well, and, and it's unexpected, which is where the future is going to come from, some right. unexpected place. I mean, that that image uh, is mind-blowing because of all of what it carries. Uh, and I'm also thrilled you went to China. I, a couple of years ago, I went 10 times over about 18 months. And I know what it feels like to get off the jetway. You're not even outside and you feel like sand in your mouth. It's it's insane. It's insane. And and I uh, after experiencing it that way and because I've been involved in indigenous communities here for so long, when I went there, all I saw was indigenous people. I saw the largest tribe in the world. They don't know it. I started to tell them and they went, hmm. Never thought of it that way. And and I would say to them, isn't Western consumer practice like the opium wars? You know, isn't this just a different version? And their eyes would get big and go, oh, my God, I, I didn't realize we are. But and I was on this crusade and then I realized, you know, Chanel's probably going to put out a hit on me if I keep talking <laughs> like this or Ferrari or something, because it is so... Um, first of all, I do believe it's the largest tribe in the world. I do believe that if they connect to who they really are in place over thousands of years, something can shift. It's a it's a tall order because of what we're doing to that culture and what they're allowing to be done to me through trauma, which gets to a much larger issue because I think we are a traumatized culture. This country is traumatized by its own past behavior, not to mention the karma it's got to work out. Um, but that China, too, through the 50s and 60s, went through an incredibly uh, traumatic period. Uh, therefore, in the 70s and 80s, it was recovering from that in a very unique way in terms of generationally people suddenly coming into their own power and going, oh, my God. You know, I don't trust anything because I'm not sure what to trust. So I'm going to get as much as I can to be safe. And then the West comes in and says, here, we've got consumption for you and and uh, it's going to make you feel better. You add to that. <laughs> sorry, I'm just like um, the fact that slavery's never gone away. Slavery still exists. It just got moved out of sight. Now it's on the other side of the world. So we can't see it, but it exists on a daily basis. I love the fact that you pointed out that it's our factory, right. essentially. Yeah, well, the, right. The, the, it's, a, it's unfair to blame China for, for their emissions. Right. Because these Absolutely. are factories. It's the factory of the world. Yep. You know, if, if Chinese coal, uh, oil, and gas is being consumed in enormous quantities, it's because... Um, those factories are making goods for Americans, for Europeans, and for yep. people all over the all over the world. Yep. When you go to China and you see 
that HM label um, mm-hmm. on the sweater in the factory that we visit. Yes, this is – so you, 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 you can't see emissions as singular to one country. Right. I will say, though, that in many – for my whole life as an adult artist, I've been working in Asia. I've, I founded my company in 1996 as a theater company in Thailand, hmm. worked in Jakarta, worked all in Japan for 10 years, and went all over the region, the Philippines, uh, Malaysia, Singapore, um, and I never visited China. Because I just didn't have any inroad to go there. Um, And I was kind of shocked. I was enormously shocked, first of all, by the environmental degradation that has happened there with the acceleration of uh, the capitalism in China. Um, But I was also shocked culturally about how I never met people who were more similar to Americans. Mm -hmm. I really felt that there was uh, uh, – that consumer culture had taken root in a way that I didn't, I hadn't seen in Thailand or hadn't seen right. in the Philippines and hadn't seen in Indonesia, for example, and felt that there was an aggressiveness, uh, you know, um, a suburbanization mm-hmm. of the value structure, uh, in, and it was surprising to me. Um, and you know, it was, it did feel like I was in eighteen, in you know, in the eighteen hundreds in 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 Britain with the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, mm-hmm. and you felt this. Um, extraordinarily raw, uh, complete transformation of, of the society. Uh, it was the, the work that we did in China, the film that we did in China, I don't think I've ever seen any pictures in a film like the, of what we captured. No, that's why I was so thrilled you did. And we got so lucky yeah. to even get the footage out of the country. See, we, we flew yeah. under the radar for the first couple of weeks. Right. And then we hit a, like, uh, well, we, we got this amazing footage of what it's like to actually be in Beijing. Mm-hmm. And people went on the record in ways that imperil their own civil liberties. Mm-hmm. And I would say um, to them, are you aware, to the interview subjects, that you are in danger by saying these things? And my producer would scream at me. And he said, mm-hmm. they know. Don't you dare try to censor them. Don't you dare try to scare them. They know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Let let them yeah. speak. Yeah. And and my producer sitting there translating when he would see some of the subjects what they were saying, he would start crying because he was so moved that people were speaking out. And and then of course, so we didn't really get it. Yeah, I was and, surprised. Yeah. And, well, well, then we got to <laughs> Inner Mongolia, and Inner Mongolia is another. Uh, kind of nation, the Mongolians, mm-hmm. that the Chinese have sort of taken over. Um, and there's a separatist movement there, and there's coal mines there. So when we got there, we were like the only Westerners in that entire hotel. And immediately, when we just walked in the door, the concierge, well, what happened was we, we our jaws were on the floor because we were watching Chinese coverage of the Iraq War on the TV in the lobby, which was totally unlike American coverage. Uh-huh. American coverage is totally glossed over. In China, you could see the American bombs blowing up and killing people and seeing thing, that that we don't get to see on CNN, right? Mm-hmm. So we sat there like, oh, and then we started to tape the TV show with our cell phones, uh-huh. and then the Chinese author- authorities were called immediately. These must be journalists. They can't be here. We can't do this. And our, our producer was detained for two hours. Who are you? What are you doing? Why are these Americans here? And he then, of course, made up a story that said, oh, we're working on a piece about Huan Ming and the Chinese solar industry, and it's a very, very positive. But we got tailed for the next three days. Um, and we had guards outside of our hotel room doors. <laughs> and all of our footage was vulnerable. We, had, we were sending copies back to the U.S., uh, but we didn't, they had not left port in China. We could see by the tracking. Hmm. And interesting story I, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going to give away how we get the footage out because I think it's quite a fun story, uh, story yeah. for people to discover in the film. Yeah. But I'll tell you a story that's not in the film. We actually, my producer from China snuck out the back door and went and made copies to send to his own address in Shanghai. So sending them from Mongolia to Shanghai through like FedEx, Chinese FedEx. Yeah. And so months, months, months later, when we're back in the United States, he calls me up and he goes, Josh, you're never going to believe this. But I needed some hard drive space to store some new stuff. And so I went to those drives because I knew you already had the copies back in the U.S. And, all this, da, da, da. and he goes, I t- plugged in those hard drives and they didn't work. And I was like, what? And he goes, and I opened them up and there were no drives inside of the cases. Oh, my God. So he, when we thought we were in the clear by getting him out the door to send them in, in UPS or China's mm-hmm. UPS to his, mm-hmm. his apartment mm-hmm. in Shanghai so that if we had at least a fail safe, we had four different sets of these drives and going in different directions just to make sure that we got out of the country. That was one of them. 
he calls me up months later and says, no, they've confiscated them. So they were password protected and encrypted, so I'm, I doubt that they could actually find the footage and see what we were up to. But I got calls from the Chinese embassy. I got it. Once we, and then once the film got into Sundance, oh, we're environmentalists too. Would you like to come in for an interview with us? And da 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 It was one of those moments where you realize this is real political repression. We got extremely lucky to get this material out. Um, I really hope that the people in the film are safe. You know, we're getting updates. We know that they're okay right now. Um, but it is a very dicey situation uh, where you don't have that same freedom of expression. You don't have those same human rights. Um, and many, many, many Chinese dissidents are in jail and they never right. getting out. So right. that's what's really those people sacrificed to get that information out to the rest of the world. For sure. The um, film, as a filmmaker, I'm, I'm sure you'll be happy to hear this, looks great. <laughs> it does. It, it, you, have, you have some, you know, I know you're telling a story here, but the film looks great. You have extraordinary shots of um, lush forest in the Amazon, um, contrasted with the deforestation that happens abruptly right at the end of that forest, and suddenly that happens. Right. You've got these great drone shots. There's a great drone shot of you in the snow on your back. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, you use that drone to affect a number of times in the film. Yep. Well, I think the drones um, have liberated uh, the landscape a, little, a lot. You know, mm -hmm. you get shots that you get. I, I started thinking about that shot when I realized in 2013 that, you know, we were in deep trouble. And I thought I, thought I would need to rent a helicopter for it. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought, how the hell am I going to get this to happen? Because I started to think, how do I? And then these drones emerged. And I was like, the minute I heard about it, we ran to the store and right. got, got back and said, we're doing this today. You know, and it just lined up perfectly. And, and um, you know, I think that, uh, for example, in the deforestation sequence, we had one crack at that or else we were going to yeah, get somebody. nabbed. Yep. You know, in Latin America right now, and especially with the recent news from Honduras of all these environmentalists being killed. Just yesterday. The people who took us out again, right, in, 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 the, in the Amazon. Um, we're doing so uh, at you know under great danger, mm -hmm. and when they're leading us through the back way, we're bushwhacking with machetes through the Amazon to get to the forest to get to the deforested area. You know, we could hear the bulldozers of the company that was cutting down the rainforest right over the ridge, and we're literally sneaking up onto that. I mean, if we don't make a big deal out of this in the film because you don't want to seem like it's ridiculous but we had one shot I mean it was like get that drone up and get it high enough that they can't hear it right and then bring it down and we got to get out of here you know and so there's that one dizzying shot with the drone going up right at the edge of the deforested area and it's jaw-dropping it makes me cry almost every time I see it and you know there aren't more shots like that because it was too dangerous for us to do it more than once. Mm -hmm. And we felt we we're really running away down the trail away from that and checking on the GoPro, which is on the drone. Did we get it? Did we get it? Did we get it? <laughs> right, yeah. And we're looking at this. And yes, sure enough, the shot is there. And we're like, we're out, you know, because yeah. we have the people, the, the farmers who whose land is getting devastated coming up to us and saying, this is all. We've got to leave now, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, of course, we don't make a big deal of that in the film. But I, the reason why they're doing that is because their very lives and their livelihoods are tied in to the, the environment. They're, that is who they are. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, they can't hunt. They can't farm. If companies come over and clear cut the Amazon, you know, it's like somebody coming and burning your house down. Right. Yep. What exactly. do you do? So yep. these were people who... We're grateful that there were journalists there. They invited us to be there. Mm -hmm. um, and we were extraordinarily lucky to have those circumstances unfold. And this happened time and time and time again in the movie. Mm -hmm. And it was like you said, something is helping us. Right. <laughs> something yeah, is exactly. helping us out here. With, and it, yeah. it makes you believe you in something because yep. you're following this through line. Yep. And if you think, yep. if you look at that movie and you go, oh, my God, six continents, 12 countries, in every single place, something crazy and extraordinary happens. Mm -hmm. I felt like the luckiest filmmaker on earth. Like, how is this happening? Right. And you start to feel like, all right, well, we're following a through line. We're following some uh, weird invisible thread here um, that's taking mm -hmm. us through. And, and I... And, and I think that's why the film has a really deep sense of gratitude in, inside yeah, of it. You feel it. Yeah. yeah. The um, film also sounds great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because you well, have an yes, extraordinary 
you've got you know uh, you've got an extraordinary amount of great music in it. There's some that mm-hmm. um, when people see it, they go, "Oh, how did he get the rights to that?" Mm-hmm. But <laughs> we then don't have I some don't. of the rights yet. I'm working on oh, it. Well. I'm sending emails out feverishly. <laughs> All right. No, but it's it's important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yep. um, and then there's some stuff like there was a uh, a busker, a street musician yeah. in the Chamber Street uh, subway station oh, in Lower God. Manhattan. Who is that young man? Who is that guy? Yeah. Well, his name is Gabriel Mayers. Mm-hmm. Um, we're hoping that the world discovers him when this film goes on HBO. Mm-hmm. He's a brilliant songwriter. That one yeah. song should yeah. make and, him a star. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, and we're going to put out the music in the film. There's a lot. I'm oh, a musician. Yeah. And, you know, I had to think about this. Like, okay, we're making a movie about potentially the end of the world. Mm-hmm. So what do we use? Well, all I was thinking for a while we were going to put in passages from Shakespeare and Emerson mm-hmm. and, you know, Walt Whitman. And right. that didn't happen. But, you know, the music, you know, from, uh, you know, Beethoven to Radiohead to, uh, uh, you know, all these incredible musicians like yeah. Machine Fabrique and these incredible artists that, have, uh, that have, we've worked with in soundtrack forever. But also, can I work with musicians live? And we did yeah. 10 or, or so of those kinds of songs. The one, Two of them survived that are in this cut. We're going to put the whole all, all of them out as a record. Oh, great. So I did a song with Alex Ebert from Edward Sharp and Magnetic Zeros. Um, I did a song with a guy named Dustin Hammond of the band Run On Sentence. And then, yes, Gabriel Mayer's in the subway there. I met him in the subway. I was on my way to somewhere, and I took the train. I was at the F train stop, and I heard that song that he was singing over and over again. Um, and the, and it, the chorus is so touching and beautiful. And I, and I just I texted um, Lee, uh, my girlfriend, this lyric because I thought it was so beautiful. And I, I thought, I must be behind on the times. This has got to be a song right. by some huge right. famous artist mm-hmm. that I don't know and this guy's covering it in his version in the subway. Right. And I bought his CD for 10 bucks and jumped on the train and sent him an email and said, "Hey, I'm my name is Josh, I make these movies. Uh, would you do a, sh- a song with me in the movie?" Um, can, you know, and and uh um he kind of was suspicious. He was like, who are you? What? And then he watched Gaston and he was like, oh, this is cool. I want to do this. So one day we, you know, we did that in the Chamber Street because we wanted to be in one of the stations that had been affected by Sandy. And, um, you know, the guy is amazing. That song moves everyone. And you only get to see, hear half of it, actually, in the movie. Mm-hmm. So we're going to put that out separately. Gabriel Mayers, look him up on Bandcamp. Yeah. Um, his material is out there. Um, but there's also a, an extraordinary band from Samoa that we met in a bar one night. Mm-hmm. And they play On the Beach with us at the very end of the movie. That's an original song. We have Nako Bear chime in on that song. You have Shuteska Martinez from Earth Guardians does a, a hip-hop break in the middle of that tune. Uh, Alexis Krauss from Sleigh Bells. Uh, Rufus Cappadocia from Bethany and Rufus. Uh, oh, yeah, Bethany sure. uh, Yarrow, Peter Yarrow's yeah. daughter. Mm-hmm. So they, he plays on the on the, tra- on I the movie. That was yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, amazing, wonderful musicians that I feel so, you know, this is sort of like my I'm a far m- more practiced, I think, filmmaker than I'm a musician, right? So, but I have more fun playing music, so I, I get to sit in with all the people. I know, a bad it's awesome. ba- I'm a pretty bad banjo player, but I get to sit in with great people. Like I've yeah. in this course yeah. of doing this, get to play with Pete Seeger, with Natalie Merchant, right? You know, with um, just amazing uh, uh, Peter Yarrow. These people who are like my heroes for my whole life, you know. Yeah. Um, so that feels very lucky. It's funny because. You know, it's not a hobby for me. I play other people's music, and, <laughs> right. Pete, and Peter makes I know. music. <laughs> right? So yeah. when yeah. you know when that uh, you know, I'm often I'm struck by a soundtrack before anything else in a film. Yeah, and so it got my attention. Good. Well, yeah. it's it's such a huge part of the Gasland films. The fabric of the music is really the emotional. Um, you know, we think of the music as another character. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. and that it's your dancing partner throughout. So the Gasland film has 50 tracks of music. And Gasland Part 2, we open with the Beach Boys, uh, Good Vibrations, uh, scoring the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm. And, uh, you know, when we went to Brian Wilson for that, he, uh, you know, he was really moved. And he said, yes, we have to use this. And I was totally shocked wow. that that happened. Because wow. if so, you had been a major filmmaker just looking to in, in make some yeah, feature, the, yeah. Batman versus Superman or something, no, no, it right. would have been hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. thankfully, it's not. It is a significant portion of our budget. We right, do sure. pay the mm-hmm. musicians well mm-hmm. um, to, to, to work in the films. Um, but, yeah, it's nothing compared. Our budgets are tiny compared to Hollywood movies, you know. Right. And so it's by the grace of these incredible artists that are, are 
supporting the mission, um, you know, that they allow us to use that music. And we're hoping that we have the same success this time out, although it's not 100% done yet. One of the interesting things, and and I want to kind of uh, confront this head on because it's an it's it's an interesting piece of this puzzle is that oftentimes people will uh, hear me talk and know who my father is and say, this is very incongruous to me, to them, you know, as they listen. And they see my dad as this uber capitalist and all these kinds of things and say, well, you know, what does he think of that? And and isn't he responsible for this? And uh, or some of this, you know, and and part of it is I think that, you know, he's guilty, but he's not to blame, which I think a lot of the systemic stuff is that that people who grow up and up inside the system only see the system and work within it. And, you know, my dad to me is like a pro baseball player. You know, he's just really good at this particular thing. And he happens to live in a world that promotes that kind of thing and and gives him a lot of props for it, to say the least. And if he was born, as, he's, as he would say, 500 years ago, he'd be somebody's lunch because he doesn't run very fast. He doesn't. You know, he can't defend himself. And so it's a particular time and place. He knows he's white. He knows he's a male. He knows he's good at numbers. He, you know, all these things that just made him lucky in this time. So here's a guy, as I think many of the people that are creating the mess we're in uh, are doing as well in terms of thinking they're doing good for their shareholders. They're doing the right thing within the, the again, the, the system we have. So it's a it's complex when you've got one thing running and running the programs. And, and I think about that when I go to Target and I just sit outside and weep practically in terms of this sort of soul sickness um, that is so convenient and, and easy that we're just going to look the other way and go home and, like the guy said, make a steak and turn up the thermostat and everything else. We are, um, you know, killing ourselves through comfort to some extent. And um, so it's more of a statement to just call that out and and see what we're sort of up against in terms of, of the current culture. And one of my favorite sayings is history is the enemy of culture. If you know history, if you understand it, culture can't survive. <laughs> Um, so, well, it's, yeah, it's a really interesting question. Are we responsible for the actions of our fathers? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the answer has to be yes, we are. Mm-hmm. But are we more responsible for the world that we're leaving for the for your grandchildren? Exactly. And I think the answer is probably doubly yes to right. that. Right. Because know? can we go to our fathers and say, change your ways? Or do we change well, our yeah, ways for that's our children? That's a fight that fathers and sons have been <laughs> right. having for centuries. Right. Exactly. I, I mean, part of this movie and from Gasland, originally, my father wanted to lease the land. And part of me making Gasland was to convince him, no, we're not well, going to do that. That's great. So to be mm-hmm. honest, there is that. That is a perennial problem. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, the, the subject of thousands of you know literature right. and novels right. and shakespeare and songs and everything else yep the truth is though that um i think that it gives hindsight's 2020 but it gives us a, an imperative i think to talk about how that legacy informs the next steps mm-hmm. um you know i was adopted by the blood tribe in canada this in in, in um the largest reservation in canada the the blood tribe um they were the whole reservation was leased for fracking. Wow. And so they invited me there and they, they na- gave me a name. And the name they gave me is He Who Survives, mm-hmm. which is because my father and his father were survivors of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And this was an ancestor. So you had to have a name from your ancestry or else. But they also said this is because we see that, that instinct mm-hmm. to survive in looking at fracking and looking ahead. So right. it was not just a looking back name, it was also a looking forward name. And I thought that was really fascinating and something I wrestle with a lot. And these are friends of mine and their family, you know, and that, that to be welcomed by that is an incredible honor, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought that was an extraordinary way to think about your both your connection to the past right. and your obligation to the future. Um, and of course, we're made up of those things that bring us to this place uh, in our heritage. When we were in France, we met these wine growers. This is a sequence that didn't make the film, but we hope to put out independently, who had been 21 generations on the same land. Wow. And were now being forced to plant different grapes because the climate was changing right. and they were organic wine farmers. 21 generations. That They've been making wine for longer than 
before oh. Columbus yeah, sailed. Exactly. Right? They had a receipt on is... the wall, and they would say, we're just one stop. We're right. just one stop. We want to pass this to the next generation. These are our principles. Wow. So these are the kinds of lessons that I think come from examining your spot in this moment in history. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very rich thing. And obviously, you're in the middle of that question, and it sounds like a deep one, yeah. <laughs> an intense one. But, but also super uh, exciting and liberating because I knew I know who my dad is, right? I know what motivates him. I was there in the 60s as a kid when he and my mom were doing things that nobody else was doing in Omaha to tackle civil rights. So it's a, it's not as heavy of a load, but it's a very interesting one uh, to carry and, and uh, uh, you know, dissolve in one way to reconstitute in another. It's, it's, it's an interesting, interesting life. <laughs> well, I want to say thanks. This has been a really, really fascinating and interesting conversation. And you're right. We could talk about things for a, a long time and hope yep. we do. Yeah. I hope this isn't yep. the last time and you hope it's the first time. So, yep. you know, I, yep. I, I really appreciate the, the, the program and the questions and the kind of things that you're asking. I, I hope people watch the film and see the depth of it. Yeah, people need to see this film. It's What's Next with Peter Buffett. I'm Jimmy Buffett. That's Josh Fox. And the website for his film, How to Let Go of the World and Love Everything Climate Can't Change, is howtoletgomovie.com. That's it for What's Next. For more shows, go to wherever fine podcasts are found. The music for the show is original and available at peterbuffett.com. I'm Jimmy Buff. See you next time. Thank you.